This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Politics in America are polarized and trivialized perhaps as never before. The result, according to our guest today, Ronald Dworkin, is a deeply depressing political culture, as ill-equipped for the perennial challenge of achieving social justice as for the emerging threats of terrorism. Yet this need not be. In his latest book, Is Democracy Possible Here? Principles for a New Political Debate, Dworkin identifies and defends core principles of personal and political morality that all citizens can share. Dworkin is Frank Henry Summer, Professor of Law at New York University and Quain Professor of Jurisprudence at University College London. First off, tell me, is the political debate really as bad as you describe it? Say, a hundred years ago, were we in the same situation, or do you really think it's degenerated over say, the last 20 years? I think it's worse. My memory doesn't go back 150 years. I mean, it hasn't been... Just think think of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. One big difference is, I think, the the decline of newspapers as opinion formers and the corresponding rise of the media, the the rest of the media television in particular, the development of uh, political strategies like television commercials and political commercials and jingles, uh, those are new, and I think the extent to which polling determines what a candidate says is new. These are trends, and they're accelerating. And so that puts us in a situation right now where there's there's uh, less communication going on between two sides in a debate. What would what would your solution be to something like that? What do you suggest in the book? In the book, I suggest a variety of things. First of all, I suggest changes in education. I think that uh, an enormous part of the problem is the, uh, the the fact that the American public simply is not well informed enough about the uh, extremely complicated issues they have to vote about. Yes. Uh, I mean, the statistics are really amazing. How few Amer- how many Americans, for example, more than a half, think that Iraqis were among the hijackers and bombers of 9-11? Yes. Uh, and I think a substantial number of Americans still think that. I think we have to have, we have to start earlier. And I, in the book, I recommend a compulsory high school class in contemporary politics in which some effort is made to explain in in sufficient complexity what the issues actually are not just the background but what the what the divisions are in our country and try and start early with a uh, to instill in americans an appetite not just for cheering for their own side, but for developing arguments, understanding they've got to have some reason for the positions they take. I also recommend rather uh, radical changes to the way we conduct elections. I I recommend, for example, that television advertising uh, commercials be banned, that politicians be required to stand up on television and actually speak themselves 
uh, and speak to camera so that people get a chance to hear arguments from them and not just see pictures of them riding on a horse. <laughs> how, how far would you see that ban on advertising go to? Would you just like to see pretty much all advertising disappear? I, I, I'd like to see the, in, a, in a, an election cycle, let's say two months before a national election, I'd like there to be a prohibition on television advertising in particular, uh, that is paid advertising. I'd like a system whereby the parties were given by the networks time available for political statements. And these political statements, as I say, should be a minimum of three minutes delivered by the candidates themselves speaking to camera. Uh, that sounds very radical, certainly different from our uh, present procedures, but that's how it's done in other countries, in Britain, for example, where I live part of every year. That's the rule. We're speaking with uh, Ronald Dworkin. The book is Democracy Possible Here. Mike? I, I just wanted to uh, go back to what you were just saying, which is uh, that uh, we used to, at least when I was in high school, you had a civics class. And I and you had to learn. I remember learning how a bill becomes law, and you walk through the different steps in which legislation becomes goes from proposal to enactment. And you went through um, really kind of the nuts and bolts of being a, a citizen. And yes. I don't think that that goes on today. I I I don't know empirically that it doesn't, but based on the level of sophistication I see. Uh, currently out there among most voters that I encounter, I doubt it is. Well, I certainly think there ought to be those those old-fashioned civics courses. But what I'm talking about really is something more than that, and that's a course in which the, the heated political issues of the day are structured and analyzed. The, the, yeah. the gay marriage argument in this country is a very good example. There uh, people, it's a very polarizing issue, as you know, and people treat it simply as a way to embarrass the other side or to score points. I don't think that any politician I know, certainly none of them has given any sign of this, has actually read the opinion of the justice who made that Massachusetts decision. I don't know that people are aware of the constitutional dimension of the argument uh, I don't see why in a high school class that kind of issue can't, can't be taken up. Or take another example, the whole question of the treatment of our detainees, people we accuse of being enemy terrorists or enemy combatants, uh, the whole question of human rights and how far what we do violates human rights of our of uh, of foreigners we accuse but don't prove uh, of being criminals. Now, th there's absolutely no reason why that issue can't be taken up at an earlier enough stage of education so that people have some background. They've read the classic discussions of what human rights are and what they're for. They've read, they've got a bit of history about the development of the idea of human rights after the Second World War and so forth. These are just exact people say to me in reaction to this, oh, you can't expect high school students to go deeply into these basically philosophical, moral issues. I think that's underestimating Americans. As long as we underestimate our young people, 
we'll get the kind of politics we have. We have to intervene somewhere. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm not. I'm not one of those people yeah. who's going to going to say that, uh, that that that's not something you should teach in high school. I think it's something that uh, that, that definitely belongs in part of a program. My only concern is how does it get there? And it seems to me that the way education is these days, people are just afraid of doing anything controversial. Uh, yeah. You can lose no, your job. I, I, I agree. Uh, what I'm proposing is, in a certain way, idealistic. But, mm-hmm. but we're the victims now, yeah. I think, of a, a dumbing-down spiral. That is, politicians talk to us as if we are ignorant. And as long as they talk to us that way, we will continue to be ignorant. Mm-hmm. You have to hope that there's a moment uh, of change. And I, I mean, in my optimistic moments, I think that this that we could be now in a in a time when people blame the political system, blame the way we elect our leaders for the fact that we're in what I think almost everybody now understands as a crisis of leadership. Yes. Ronald Dworkin, first of all, I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Ronald Dworkin. Is democracy possible here? Um, you spent some time overseas, abroad. You, you, you said you live part-time in England. Yes. How would you rank America's version of democracy in in terms of other democracies uh, around the world? Where would you place it in terms of its its efficiency, its effectiveness, its uh, its reflection of people's will? Where would you where would you rank the United States? Democracy? It's it's a complicated question. It's hard to rank it on only one dimension. In some respects, America is a paradigm of democracy. I think our standards of free speech really do lead the world. And I think the political stability we've developed lead the world. If you take a more historical perspective, I think that America, I mean, going back, say, uh, to the last half of the last century, America gave the world much of what is best in it after the Second World War unparalleled example of national generosity in such things as the Marshall Plan, leadership in international law, all these were made possible by the stability of America as a democracy. In those ways, I think America really is in the forefront of democracy and remains so. But in my book, I argue that that doesn't exhaust democracy. Majority government and stable majority government is not all it takes to be an admirable democracy. Democracy, ideally, should be a partnership in Mm self-government. And that means that, that people win and lose, they argue, they disagree, but they regard themselves as in a joint enterprise. And in particular, they respect each other enough to listen and argue. Mm-hmm. And in that respect, America is at the bottom of the line among the mature democracies. Mm-hmm. The quality of argument in Britain, uh, where, which I know the most about, just is higher than it is here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Britain is nowhere near as powerful a country. It doesn't matter so much for the world what happens there, but it matters some, and the British people take their politics more seriously than we do. I think that's also true in France, another country I know a bit about. 
I think it is getting to be true in the nascent democracies of Eastern Europe, where they love the idea of democracy. It's something new for them, and they're trying to build it. I think all those countries have a better understanding of democracy as partnership than we seem to be managing now. We think of politics as a as a kind of war by other means. Or a, yeah, it's a blood sport here in America. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, you mentioned something earlier about uh, the, and I think it's an increasing number of people in the last couple of years who believe that uh, WMDs were found in Iraq, yes. and, which is so distressing because even the president now has to admit that there weren't any. But that doesn't matter. Increasingly, people believe it happened or it was true. And and Gus, go to the con. This is the consequences of an electorate that's ill informed. The consequences are we have a crisis of leadership in the country. These things do not go without consequence. They do not happen without consequence. We we uh, um, are increasingly seen around the world as as uh, as a nation that is a rogue nation. More tend tend to. uh, into violence and then more than anything else what can we do to turn this around besides that i mean what you said earlier which is a better educated electorate but what what other steps can we can we take that, that's the main step yeah. i also think that we have to improve the quality of public discussion and in the book i make some suggestions about replacing the present inane commercials with uh, with actual statements, I think we the the presidential debates have to get better, yeah. and I think we can change the rules for those. And because now the rules are set by the candidates, and I think we should develop a different culture in which the rules are set by the people, and uh, we'd get better debates. None of these things is a magic bullet. Yeah, this is a cultural problem, and cultures shift slowly but seismically. And I don't see any reason why we shouldn't, particularly taking advantage of the fact that we are in a kind of crisis, why we shouldn't uh, hope by um, isolated examples to just, just to try and convince people that part of the problem, they all know there's a problem, that part of the problem is down to them, to their lack of education, to their lack of participation, and keep our fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, it's not only just a lack of education. It's, it's what they're educated in, if I can say so, too. I mean, there's, there's a business bottom line running through America, and, and people are very good at, uh, at making money and, and not very good at, at, at uh, paying attention to social problems and how they might be solved. Is, well, go ahead. well, the money in America is itself a terrible problem of, of fairness. And, you know, there, uh, there is no reason why people who think there should be more Christian displays in public life should also think that taxes on the rich should be lowered. There's just no reason in principle why those go together. That's right. That's right. And there have been. I mean, this is one of the great political masterstrokes of history that people have been told that they shouldn't mind if their own wages are low and their standard of living is declining. And they see all around them people with 
obscene amounts of wealth. They shouldn't mind that because their president refers to God all the time. Now, that's a, a political uh, hoodwinking. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of culture uh, that, that, we we've, that we've produced. You have to ask a few questions. I mean, in the book, I've got a chapter about taxation, our attitude towards taxation. And I begin the argument by saying, uh, don't we all agree that a government must have equal concern for the fate of every citizen? Yes. Can we say that the culture of wealth that we've developed has equal concern for the fate of every citizen? That's a very hard thing to believe. We just have to get more people to ask that question. We're speaking with Ronald Dworkin. The book is Democracy Possible. And I want to layer on top of what you just said, which is we're at a time of war. On top of everything else, however disconnected the argument was before, we're now in a, in a state of war. And I guess that's the rationale for it's become the rationale for doing all these crazy things. Yes, that's uh, another example of political hoodwinking. Yeah. We're yeah. not in a war. Well, yes, you're right. It, we're, <laughs> we're not in a war, yeah. and yet the president is assuming powers and convincing the people. He's done that. He's convinced the people to use the phrase war all the time. Uh, and, the the, the terrorist threat is very serious, but it should not be confused with war. What happened with a declaration of war? What happened? Why we're constantly <laughs> in a state of battle with some country, and yet we're never officially at war? It just it it, it uh, mind boggling to me that 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 goes on. But I, I want to say something also about the, the American democracy, which is that we've gotten really good at tinkering uh, with our democracy uh, to the uh, to the effect of excluding people from it. And yes. that's a real problem, and I, I, something that we desperately need to address because, and I'll just say the Republicans because they've been better at it than the Democrats for this, at this particular time, at excluding people, at figuring out ways in which we can purge lists and, and, we, can drive, and we can drive a negative campaign to drive people away from the polls and all the rest of it. We've gotten so, our, we've gotten so good at our democracy that we've gotten, we've gotten even better at tweaking it in, in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think we have to get across the idea this isn't tweaking. This is destroying. Yeah, well, the there is no yeah. defense. Even even the people who believe that democracy just means majority will have got to accept that they can't decide themselves who that majority is. Districting is a terrible problem yeah. in the United States, and the Supreme Court has, in my view, abdicated its responsibility to police our democracy mm -hmm. because it's refused to stop political parties from gerrymandering districts so as to, as to make the votes of some people count more than others. Yeah. And speaking of the Supreme Court, I, I noticed you are in favor of term limits for the Supreme Court. Is, is there a specific reason for that? Or? Yes, I think that, that the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and its work depends on two things. It depends on its independence from ordinary politics. That's very important. Uh, you, you certainly don't want judges elected or thrown out uh, when the people tire of them. That would be a terrible corruption of the whole idea of judicial review. On the other hand, the legitimacy depends on there being some responsiveness on the part of 
judges to changes in public opinion and public principle. And I think that the present system whereby politicians work to get very young and very ideological justices appointed, relatively young compared historically, and much more ideological than was the case before. They work to get them appointed so as to perpetuate their ideology across decades. We're seeing that now. I think the right way to uh, reach the right balance between independence and responsiveness is to say judges, justices are immune from the political recall, but they, they serve only a decent length of time to try and, and get some responsiveness to changed attitudes and principles in the public as a whole. I'll, I will say this administration um, has been great at holding on to power. They're fantastic at it. They know how to grab the levers of power and run with them as better better than any administration I've ever seen in my life. Um, I want to thank. What was that about Mike? Well, I just think, well, I just think. That I guess. I guess <laughs> you're giving credit for that. Eh? Well, I, I mean, they're they're incompetent in so many other ways, but yeah. the but their ability to <laughs> okay. uh, to be able to do that. Well, but it's worth saying, I think that uh, that they've. Uh, in Franklin Roosevelt, in another yeah. another age, was very good at holding on to power, but he did it by uh, with with his allies by constructing a set of principles that united a large enough section of the people. Right. So he sustained power, and the democratic regime that lasted for a very long time was, I think, sustained by an alliance of uh, people who had formerly not had much power. The Republicans seem to me to be putting together uh, alliances that are not based on principle. I mentioned earlier the alliance of the Christian right with plutocrats. That doesn't, that's not a natural alliance of principle. So in a way, they're geniuses, yeah. can, alchemists at constructing power out of nothing. But, right. Right. but maybe that can't be sustained. Well, it, 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 <laughs> I, I, I hope not either. Well, Ronald Dworkin, thank you very much for being here on Weekly Signals. The book is Democracy Possible Here Principles for a New Political Debate. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.